Let's go, girls. Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. I don't know about you, but I am over the moon that the clocks are going ahead this weekend because while I'm not really loving the thought of a missed hour of sleep, I am totally here for the longer days. It's been a long, hard winter. As always, I love to look up what weird and wacky holidays we're supposed to be celebrating whenever this show airs, and today is National Good Samaritan Day a day in which people are encouraged to do something unselfish for someone else, and there's nothing I can really make fun of about that one. In fact, I hope we all do something kind for someone else today, and to give you a little inspiration, it's fitting that we're kicking off this week's show with a phenomenal role model of public service. The Honorable Jean Augustine is a social justice warrior in the truest sense, and a hard woman to pin down but I was pretty tenacious in tracking her down to join me for this show. Dr. Augustine is a Grenadian-Canadian educational administrator, advocate for social justice, and politician. She was the first black Canadian woman elected to the House of Commons, and she is absolutely tireless and always working, as you'll hear through the interview, with the buzzing and beeping in the background. It seems everyone wants to hear what Dr. Augustine has to say. Anne Brody joins me for entertainment this week and takes us on an intense roller coaster of emotion with Death of a Ladies' Man with Gabriel Byrne, Night of the King, a contender for an Academy Award with Best International Film, and a documentary on Discovery Plus original called Attack of the Murder Hornets that might be the next thing to keep you awake at night. Vaccinations for COVID-19 are finally ramping up, and while many of us can't wait to jump in line, myself included, a third of Canadians are hesitant to get one. Kelly Peters, CEO and co-founder of BeWorks, joins me to discuss the vaccine showdown shaping up in our country and how we can address concerns of those that they believe they are not safe. The clocks are moving ahead this weekend, as we noted, and that means spring can't be far behind, which means that pothole season will be joining it. Tiffany Moyer, my tire guru from Cal Tire, joins me to share why it's so important not to ignore the hits and bumps your car takes on spring roads, and what you need to watch out for on your tires and with your car's alignment. Also, you'll definitely want to know what your car insurance might say about the time to switch from your winter tires to your summer tires. No organization felt the impact of COVID-19 quicker than Food Banks of Canada last year. I interviewed Kirsten Kirsten Beardsley a mere two weeks after lockdown, and the effects were profound. I caught up with her this week to hear some of the incredible stories of humanity that have come out of this and how Food Banks of Canada continues to innovate and help those in our communities across the country that need it most. Sticking with the topic of food, the last year has a lot of us reassessing our diets as we seek to make our bodies and our planet healthier. Shelby Taylor, CEO of Chicopee, is on a mission to create good for the world through nutritious and organic meal options and joins me today to share some of the why behind her increasingly popular brand and what it means for her to be a certified women-owned business and B Corporation. 
It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. We celebrate strong women every day here at What She Said, but every once in a while I have the privilege of sharing a true queen with you. Honorable Jean Augustine is a Grenadian-Canadian educational administrator, advocate for social justice, and politician. She was the first Black Canadian woman elected to the House of Commons and has dedicated her life to improving the human condition and is a role model for us all as we move ahead into our new post-pandemic world. She joins me today to graciously share her story and wisdom with us. Welcome to the show, Dr. Augustine. Well, thank you so much, uh, Candice. Happy to be with you. So I think it's fair to say that you're a social justice warrior. So what is the why behind that? Why did you choose this path? I have to go back to my early years growing up in Happy Hills and George's Grenada um, among uh, really great, strong community matriarchs and, uh, and with a grandmother who did not have the education that we all seek now, like post-secondary or anything like that, but was very much, very much concerned about the education of girls, the education of young women, um, the education of the grandchildren and, and uh, the education of young people in the community. So she started me on the whole business of self-esteem. You are a bright girl, you can do it. Way before Obama uh, said, yes, you can. My grandmother said to me, yes, you can. As a girl, you can do just about everything. You can, uh, because in those days, remember now I'm an older person. And in those days, uh, the boys were the ones that were encouraged to get into post-secondary, to get into uh, professionals, to, to be professionals. And so she felt, oh, girl can do that. Girl, you can do this. And so when I came to Canada, coming from an island where I saw Black people in every sphere of endeavor on the island, whether it was uh, the entrepreneurs or whether it was people working in the public service or teachers or, you know, everyone was a person of color like myself. And uh, coming to Toronto, <laughs> it was a whole different uh, scene at the same time. In, um, in Canada, in Toronto, uh, there were several things that I felt were unjust because I grew up with that sense of, of um, seeing what was wrong and trying to do something about it. And, and I had that instilled in me. And so we had no, the first thing for me was the issue of, um, of housing. We had no Landlord and Tenant Act so that the landlord could say it's for rent, but not for you. We had no human rights code as we know it today that didn't come till 1962 so that you didn't have a way to complain. Our Charter of Rights and Freedom didn't come till 1982. School boards were not talking to parents and bringing community into the schools at the time. The police was called the police force. Police were reporting to themselves and there were a whole series of things in the justice system. And so there were lots of people on the ground really working at this, trying to change policy, trying to be, to advocate for change. And the, of course, the, the, the issue of the just society, the diverse 
society, the coming of immigrants from different parts of the world. How are we to live and work and play together? How do we get to know each other? So that was the beginning of my, my activism in trying to make Toronto a better place, to make the community uh, better, and to push for laws and policies and codes and regulations that would make life better, not only for myself and those of us who are advocates, but to make life better for a community and for a country. You know, and, and as you're telling me this and this, you know, that I realize this is a very brief synopsis of your history. What I'm getting out of this is that you just have this unstoppable drive. Nothing is going to make you give up in spite of the odds. And I suspect yes. there were many odds against you as you came up through this pathway to where you are now. Yes, I think uh, the word resilience is what I have in the back, stamp in the back of my forehead <laughs> somewhere. Uh, you've fallen, you're behind, you pick yourself up and you keep going again. If you are passionate about something and if you see the social, the injustice there that you work at it passionately, you bring others to the table, you bring people from the margins to the center. And how do you work at all of this and how you get it all together? I gave a talk the other day where I talk about intersectionality. When something happens, what intersection am I at? Is it woman? Is it black woman? Is it immigrant woman? Is it immigrant black woman? Is it Catholic woman? <laughs> Catholic woman, Catholic black woman? Or these days I say, is it senior, black senior? So things happen. Microaggression as the terminology is now used. In my earlier days, we were talking about prejudice and uh, racism, you know, calling it what it is. Now we nuance a whole lot of that language. And, uh, and you know, looking for, um, for a way to make um, issues that should be of concern to policymakers, uh, working to ensure that they understand what needs to be done if we are to be this diverse, inclusive society. What we're all, well, not what we're all hoping for, but what certainly what I'm hoping for. And by the way, that, that explanation of intersectionality is now burned in my brain. That is one of the best explanations I've heard of it. Uh, so what are you working on now then? What is driving you right now? I have a center for young women's empowerment. I'm trying to provide young women with leadership because uh, remember the, the UN says they're looking for gender parity by the year 2024 that we have coming from Ottawa, we have a gender um, equal cabinet and that a lot of um, the policies are all gender, you know, with, with uh, gender based. I have this uh, center where we have over 200 young uh, girls. We take them from age seven to 17. Start them early because if you're going to develop leadership skills and self-affirmation and self-esteem, um, and have them think in terms of career STEM uh, programs and all these things that are important and necessary. The funny thing is, as I'm hearing you say gender parity by 2024, and I think of what we've lost in the last year as far as uh, of advancing that, that cause. Uh, so we, we certainly need to hustle by the time to get to that, but for 2024. So I'm glad that you are, that is a, um, something you're championing because I'm sure you're going to put the hustle in people. <laughs> the last year has certainly been difficult. There's been a lot of injustice for, for women of color, women overall. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of upset and discord. Are there any bright spots? Is there anything you've seen that, that gives hope? 
for us? When we look around to what the challenges we've had in the past year to show us who the essential workers are, to focus on, uh, on anti-racist um, policies, uh, systemic discrimination, the, what we must do, uh, the Black Lives Matter and George Floyd has uh, shown us and has helped the whole world to realize that we are indeed in a global, uh, in a global village. The world is, um, is at the point where we've all been having some of the same conversations. And the conversations is about this diverse world, equity issues, inclusion, how we have to bring everyone around the table. And I think that conversation is what makes me hopeful when corporate bodies can say, let me look, let us look at our boardrooms. Let us look at our promotional opportunities. Let's see who are the voices who are part of our policy making. Let's see what roots there is to, to enable individuals from the margins to come to the center. And how can we have all voices engaged and involved? Because we know the importance of uh, the bottom line for us is businesses when we have um, everyone engaged, when we have everyone involved, when we have decision makers that come from uh, different fields of endeavor, from all of the various and varying com uh, communities that make up our Canada. And I think that those are the things that make me hopeful when I see young people getting into into um, academia into with courses and things that speak to the nature of Canadian society, what we all must do. And so, uh, you know, and programs like yours, Candice, that's giving us opportunities to converse, to agree, to disagree, to be aware. Keep talking about it until things change. I am so honored and thrilled that you joined me today. Like I mentioned to you before our interview, I pretty much stalked you for, for every week. <laughs> to get you on the show so i'm so glad you joined me uh if people want to keep up with you keep up with your work where can they find out more about you and what you're up to on the social media thing on instagram on gene h-o-n-gene augustine um i am also um, my bio is out there i think if they do a search gene augustine my biography is out there and uh so they'll find the gene augustine chair in education at york university um, again, my bio and the ways to reach me, they're all out there. And I'm sure Candice, having reached me, you know how to. Yeah, exactly. If anybody wants to know how to get a hold of you, I can share. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Augustine. This was wonderful. And I hope to have you back again soon. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. These wings are made to fly. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Ann Brody. And every week, Ann sends me a list of trailers to watch before we talk. And all I can say is this week, the ride is intense. Ann, what do you got for us? It's dark and intense and, wow, grinds you down a little bit. But that is typical for January, February, March. Uh, yeah, so let's start with... Um, 
Death of a Ladies Man. It's a very good film. And it stars Gabriel Byrne. And we have our interview up on, on the website. He plays a, a man with a lot of problems. He's a severe alcoholic, 39 drinks a day for 40 years. And uh, he has women coming out of the woodwork. I don't know how. He's so charming, I guess. But anyway, he realizes that his time is coming. And he begins to have hallucinations. Um, he goes to the bar constantly. And he sees a tiger with a... a tigers walking around it's bizarre but it's very poetic and it's all inspired by the music of Leonard Cohen so it was shot in Montreal and uh you know Leonard Cohen fans will, will get a big charge out of it um so yeah it's a good one and Gabriel Byrne I gotta say no matter what problems his character has he's just charming I, actually, I haven't seen him in anything in so long, so it was refreshing to see him. The next one, though, Anne, Knights of the King. I got to tell you, usually when I see a foreign film with subtitles, I tune out. This one, I could not take my eyes off the screen. So tell us about that one. Oh, my God, it's incredible. It is also the Ivory Coast's Oscar entry for Best International Picture, and it's about a young boy who goes to jail in this horrible, infamous prison that's actually run by an inmate. Um, and there's a, a tradition, an ages old tradition that goes on there. The boss, the prison boss is ill, he's dying. He has to find a new storyteller for the Red Moon, which is coming up. So this boy is uh, made to do this. He's made to tell a story and to hold everybody's attention. And the great thing, there's so many great things about this film. I love it. Is that the inmates dance or sing to augment his story without him saying anything. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, so then the only white man in the prison who's actually created Holy Motors lets him know that he's got to keep his story going all night long right through the red moon or he's going to be killed. And it all happens in this claustrophobic uh, prison room um, that's set with curtains everywhere and you never know where you're going or who you're going to see and uh, the cast is all dancers actors performers drag queens it is astonishing it is so amazing so out of our sphere and where is that uh, available then Anne? tvod okay Good wonderful TVOD. listen i want to get to the next one because this one actually kind of stressed me out Oh, yeah. uh, and and also, I think it highlights a major concern we're looking at in the world that we need to address, and it's not COVID, and that is murder hornets. <laughs> wow! Yeah, it's a documentary, but it's 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 kind of like a thriller or like uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And a man, I'm sure you remember the report of the man in Washington State who had sixty thousand of his bees wiped out overnight each one decapitated. Well, that was the murder hornets. Um, so they have to be stopped because once the bees are killed, that spells the end for us because the bees pollinate agriculture, forests, they give us oxygen, food, everything. So the bees are just top of the list. So these, um, you know, brave scientists go out in search of a single nest in the state of Washington. And uh, somebody finds one bug and attach, after great trouble, attach a transmitter to it, and they find the nest and destroy it. But then, like, the human element comes in, and it's just astounding. Um, yeah, it's really scary. These little monsters have huge mandibles that can just rip a head off in no time so that they can eat the body. 
And I think, I think, you know, the bees, their existence is perilous to begin with. And now you've got this outside attack, these murder hornets who shouldn't be here, uh, but through globalization, they are. Uh, We need to address this. So it's just, I think it's worth watching because I think people need to know that they they need need to to be protecting the bees for heaven's sakes. Please protect the bees. This stresses me out. All right, Anne, we got about a minute left. What else can we not miss this week? Okay, you cannot miss Balthazar on acorn oh wow it's so cool the most gorgeous french uh forensics medical examiner he is uh he's really good looking he's really fit but he eats sweets all day long to me that's a big mystery of this show but anyway it's it's he investigates crimes and they're really well constructed and he has this partner the new head of detectives and she's uh she's not buying him she thinks he's he's just a, a bit too much but the cases are interesting and he's so cool turns out his wife was murdered 10 years earlier so she comes to visit him from time to time to encourage him to tell him to keep on doing his important work and not to kill himself so which i guess is part of the thing of the sweets and and the diet and lifestyle so as usual, you have much more available on the website, what she said, talk.com. Uh, and so if people want to go check that out, then they'll have all of their entertainment needs met for this week. Yes. Um, thank yes. you, Anne. Uh, next week, could you dial back the intensity for me a little bit? I'll call the studios. <laughs> that was a stressful ride this week. <laughs> and for me to watch them all. <laughs> all right, Anne, thanks so much. We'll see you again next week. See you next week. When COVID first emerged a year ago, the race for a vaccine was almost immediate once the impact of the virus on our society became clear. When news came in the late fall that not one, but many vaccines were proving to be effective in fighting COVID, there was a brief sigh of relief quickly followed by skepticism and whispers of conspiracy. Now, as Canada begins to vaccinate en masse, a third of Canadians are hesitant to get one. Kelly Peters is the CEO and co-founder of BeWorks, the world's leading behavioral economics firm and one of the largest employers of psychologists in the private sector. She believes that when applied properly, scientific thinking has the power to transform society. She is joining me today to discuss the vaccine showdown shaping up in our country and how we can address concerns of those that believe they are not safe. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me on this uh, especially difficult topic. It is a huge topic. I don't think we'll even get to scratch the surface in 10 minutes, but I would like to get to as much as possible. So tell me then, what are some of the statistics you know about how people in this country are feeling about vaccines right now? Well, first of all, our research is consistent and converges with what other surveys have found. And you might've seen different headlines coming out over the last number of weeks that talk about the fact that we've got, you know, plus or minus half of us are enthusiastic and waiting our turn. And then the rest of us um, fall between the spectrum of uh, hesitant by a little bit, hesitant by a lot. And then we have another group that's around 10% of us that are outright opposed to getting the vaccine. So first of all, our research is showing and is consistent with other findings. 
my uh, personal opinion is that we're sort of looking at a world really living in two separate realities right now. Uh, we don't intermingle a lot with our thoughts. And, and so how do you get through to a group that is getting their news from a different source than others, uh, maybe not getting all the facts? Um, how do we address such a massive uh, misinformation uh, campaign that's out there? Yeah, I think that you're getting right to the heart of the matter. And that's what's unique about our study is that it's not just about gathering that basic statistical data. Of course, that's important. We all need to know what we're dealing with as a society after that collective sigh of relief. And then we heard many going, mm -mm, nope, I'm out. We needed to understand why, what's driving that. And we uncovered some of the barriers that we face. So one of the issues is we just have very low scientific literacy in our society. And we measured that in our work. We asked people questions like, which is bigger, an atom or an electron? And some other fundamental science questions. And perhaps now, not surprisingly, we found that people that are hesitant or opposed to vaccines actually did very poorly on the science literacy component of our, of our research. The other thing that we found, and this is very surprising, but something that's important for all of us to think about, is the role of our personal beliefs over evidence. So we ask people questions like, if evidence conflicts with your current personal beliefs, does that mean that your beliefs are wrong? And we asked another question, which is like, regardless of the topic, um, what you believe to be true is more important than evidence that goes against your beliefs. And it turns out that for those of you who have any kind of science background or, or you know, believe in data and evidence, you would be willing to let your personal beliefs stand aside and let the evidence lead the way. Surprisingly, many people confidently assert that their beliefs are more valid than what we call evidence. And perhaps not surprisingly, we saw a high degree of overlap between people who feel their personal opinions is worth more or more truthy than evidence are more likely to believe in, uh, be hesitant about the vaccine or even believe in conspiracy theories. So these were a couple of our starting points. And then when we dig even a little bit deeper in terms of how people think. One of the really interesting things that's emerged from a field called behavioral economics is when do we use our intuition and when do we use analytics, analysis, and data to inform our decision-making? And it turns out some of the times we use intuition, some of the times we use analytics. Well, it turns out that we are using our intuition to guide and govern our perception of things like the safety of vaccines when we ought to be using our analytic capability. So these factors, how people think, are actually highly predictive of people's perception of the safety of the vaccine. So you talk about, you know, that people, um, they're, they're not looking at the facts, they're going by their intuition. Um, but, you know, aside from education, which is key, and, you know, things we need to address in the school system, like critical thinking and scientific thinking and pr providing these skills to people, which is really a long-term goal, uh, we don't have uh, that when it comes to this vaccine. So our current campaigns aren't working. How can we get this message to people that they're not going to be tracked? This We're not out to hurt them. This is, a you know, about everybody's safety and health. How do we get those messages through? 
Well, first of all, if if you are somebody who is looking forward to getting the vaccine, you need to actually make that stance known. Whether you're on social media or you've got other channels in which you're able to demonstrate your position, it's absolutely critical that you do so. Things like changing your profile picture across your social media that says that you are looking forward to the COVID-19 vaccine. That social proof will help us leverage and build momentum around the fact that the truth is the majority of us are looking forward to the vaccine. And as we can reach deeper into working on the folks that have questions, we need to have our uh, healthcare providers understand how to talk to people about things like making the distinction between a legitimate and credible authority versus a fake authority that doesn't necessarily have your best interest at heart. So we need to help our healthcare practitioners understand how to have those conversations. But what about the rest of us? How do we talk to our friends and family if they're deep into conspiracy theories? The first thing, despite our frustration and despite the temptation, is to avoid shaming them. As frustrating as it might be, it won't advance anything and it will probably cause both of you pain and it will make the conversation even more difficult to have. What the research suggests is that if we actually take the conversation deeper, let's forget talking about vaccines, let's forget talking about science, and let's actually get into what are the sources of the grievances, what are the sources of the distrust, and let's actually move deeper into the conversation and start to figure out where it is that people felt that maybe big pharma went wrong in our society, or the perception that a powerful government is trying to do something to put control over people or other forms of, of a global reset are trying to take away the power from you and I. Taking the conversation deeper into that more fundamental levels of distrust is actually where we need to go. And then starting to ask, you know, how do we know that to be true? And also, you know, what's the proof that someone is out to harm us? So the conversations need to be much more philosophical than showing YouTube videos from some, you know, discredited healthcare professional about vaccine uh, hazards. And I think if we, even if we can just, you know, be, have some self-awareness of ourselves, we all know that if you push somebody on a point, they're just going to dig in deeper. It's just human nature. Uh, so instead of being combative, I think you make some excellent points. So if people want to you know, learn more about this so they can address these concerns with people, where can they find you? Where can they find out more about your work? Uh, is there a place we can follow you on social media? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, please take a look at our website, which is at www.beworks.com. We also have active social media, so you'll find us under the same name on Twitter and on LinkedIn. We're regularly publishing our studies, making our research available. And on this topic in particular, I encourage everyone to take a look at our research and other research that's been done to help understand the behavioral barriers to vaccine demand. All right. Amazing. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. This was incredibly helpful. Uh, and I encourage everybody to go check out your website. And hopefully we'll have you back in a few months. And maybe we'll be looking at a different story. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And everybody stay safe and be well.
More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. It feels like only yesterday I was speaking to my next guest about getting our cars ready for winter, and now here we are planning for spring and pothole season. Tiffany Moyer is a store manager at Caltire in Waterloo and is my tire guru. So listen close, ladies, to the next segment, and you could save yourself a lot of aggravation and damage to your car with these tips. Welcome back to the show, Tiffany. Thanks for having me again. So it's that time of year, we're hitting potholes all over the place. And, you know, I think we, I think we're just so used to potholes, we don't really think about the damage they're doing to our car. So what, what kind of damage do they cause? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everyone sees it coming and they brace a little bit and then you don't really think about it again after. But repeatedly hitting those potholes can cause some damage to our vehicle, like, your wheels being misaligned or potentially bending rims, damaging our tires. So those repeated pothole hits or those really, really big pothole hits, and especially if your car starts to feel a little bit funny afterwards, you should definitely take it to have it looked at. So listen, I'm, I'm one of those people that I would drive over a, a pothole and go, eh, oh, I hope that didn't hurt anything. But they don't really think about it. Like you're saying that and it seems a little abstract. So so tell me if I go over a pothole, for example, and you were talking, we were talking earlier and you said if we see a bulge in our tire, like what does that look like and, and what, what could happen? So a bulge is when all the metal cords in the sidewall of your tire that normally sit like this have now split. So if you think of that like a balloon, you have that balloon that right now it has that nice metal hard wall. When those split, you now only have the rubber state holding all the air in your tire. So when you see along the, if you're looking at the side of your tire, if you see something that bubbles outwards, that's a good idea that you have a bulge in your tire and you should take it to your mechanic or your local tire place and have them inspect it to see if that's a tire that needs to be replaced. Unfortunately, it's not something that can be repaired. Okay, so uh, when it comes to alignment, you know, that's something, you know, you can kind of feel in your car. Uh, but how does that, how does, this, how does that translate to an everyday problem for us if we don't pay attention to it? Yeah, so one way to tell your vehicle might need an alignment is if you're experiencing some high speed vibrations, especially if they weren't there prior to the impact, or if you're finding that your vehicle starts to pull or starts to wander. So if those things are happening, you should have somebody check your alignment. The reason being is big factors when your alignment's out on your vehicle is that, you know how when people are learning to ski or skate and they kind of do that snow plow? Well, that's what your tires can end up doing and they end up dragging down the road. So your tires can wear prematurely, your fuel efficiency is going to be reduced in your vehicle. And it's just going to cause extra wear and extra tear on some of your components. And I, and you mentioned too, too about electric vehicles, which more and more people are, are getting, uh, which is fantastic for the environment. I love seeing it. But how does that work for alignment on an electric vehicle? What's the, what are the issues there? Yeah, so electric or gas, if your tires aren't facing forward and they're facing in or out, 
they're not going in the direction you want your vehicle to go. So they're fighting the natural momentum of your vehicle. So on an electric vehicle, it's actually going to reduce the mileage you're getting out of every charge. And on a gas vehicle, it's going to reduce your fuel efficiency. Okay, so we know that, you know, that, that these things are important. And I know that you can get your alignment checked at Caltire for free. Uh, you have new protocols in place, though, due to COVID. So how do you make an appointment right now at Caltire? Right now, you can call in, you can go online, you can stop in and see us. Uh, a lot of the time, we can get that alignment check done for free. And then if it's needed, go ahead with those adjustments at the same time. If that's not convenient for you, we can absolutely schedule you back in for that adjustment. Okay. And the last thing I want to talk to you about is um, sort of the timing of all of this. You know, it's, it's a really uh, across the country, obviously, uh, weather is is different everywhere. So, you know, in Ottawa here, we still have quite a bit of snow on the ground. Uh, and I know we have a new uh, Cal Tire here at 36 Edgewater, which is not far. So, um, so it's, it's fantastic, but the timing is not so great here, but in other places, it might be the right time. When do we know it's the right time to get our tires looked at, uh, switch over perhaps to, uh, you know, our summer tires? Yeah, seven degrees is that magic number. So once the weather is consistently above seven degrees, that's when your all season or your three season tires, your summer tires are gonna start outperforming your winter tires. And when your winter tires would start seeing poor performance and rapid wear. So seven degrees is really that magic number, but you also wanna pay attention to when your insurance requires you to keep your winter tires on until. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Is there a magic date for that? Insurance companies vary a little bit. Most of the ones in Southern Ontario are the end of March. Okay, that's that's actually knowledge I did not know, and I'm so glad you shared it with everybody. Uh, so if despite the weather, maybe, you know, this week we're going to get 11 degrees here. Uh, don't rush. We're not at the magic date yet, so that's good to know. Um, Tiffany, uh, where can people find out more uh, about, you know, getting their tire changed over and actually just more information in general about Cal Tire? So you can go online to caltire.com. We're also on all of our social medias. Really great experiences coming in, stopping in and talking to us in the store. We, our storefronts are still open. We do have access. We just make sure that everyone wears a mask if they're able to. Um, we love meeting you face to face. And then we can actually take a look at your vehicle and can sometimes even make suggestions right there. If you can't stop into the store, you can go online. We have a really fantastic e-commerce platform or you can call in and we can help you out over the phone. All right, my tire guru. Thank you so much, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. Going into lockdown last year, Food Banks of Canada was feeling the strain, and Kirsten Beardsley, Chief Network Services Officer, joined me to share the impact COVID had in the early days of the pandemic. One year later, the need is even greater, and Kirsten joins me once again to share how you can help. Welcome back, Kirsten. I, I wish it was under different circumstances. <laughs> me too. Thank you. So last year, you know, when we spoke, it was just I remember this so well because it was just at the end of March and we'd literally just gone into lockdown. So we're here one year later. What does it look like now for Food Banks of Canada? 
Well, it's a different story, obviously. Um, I think last March, what we were facing was a lot of unknown. I mean, personally, but also the food banks, not knowing who was going to come through the door, not knowing where the food was going to come from. We had a lot of panicked food banks saying, I've got one week of food on my shelves and people are coming through the door at a steady pace. And what, what are we going to do? Um, one year later, what we, we have is, you know, a a real story of Canadian Canadians coming together and a real story of food bankers being heroes. And I know um, we use that word a lot, but it isn't an overstatement with food banks. Um, they open their doors. They haven't taken a break. They've been there every single day to make sure that everyone in our communities across the country have the food that they need. And they deal with uncertainty like you can imagine how we're all dealing with not knowing what the new lockdown measures are going to mean the food banks are dealing with the same things um, the Regina food bank is in probably their fourth completely re um, rejigged operation they went from you know adding social distancing to doing a drive-through um, food bank model and you know complete adaptations for the winter months so these are these are people who have um, innovated, who have never given up to make sure that people have food on their table. So it's, um, you know, it's a story that we're all in the pandemic, but the story I'm coming uh, to you with is just how wonderful food bankers are. So, you know, I, I imagine that in the early days, um, as we all were, it was all about reaction. Now that you've been in it for a year, uh, are there some key learnings that we can carry forward uh, you know, now even through as this continues and post-pandemic? Yeah, I think, um, I think one of them that is really clear to me is just how critical food banks are um, to their communities that they serve and, and that they need to be part of some of the planning, that we can't have a situation where there might be people in our communities going hungry um, and those services not available. I think one of the lessons that I'm really sitting with that's hard for me is just how differently the pandemic is, has hit different people. And the people who use food banks are folks who are experiencing poverty. Um, there are a lot of single parent families, you know, people who are, um, you know, going through job changes, you know, people who are having a hard time anyways. And the pandemic has hurt them even greater than everybody, you know, everybody else who's been able, who've been able to adapt and keep their jobs and work from home. And so I think it's a real moment for us to think about how we come back from the pandemic by making sure that we don't leave people behind. Um, you know, it's International Women's Day this week. And so we're really uh, focusing on advocating for affordable childcare. Um, people shouldn't have to decide whether they're going to come out of the workforce, put a kid in childcare and or put food on the table. I mean, those are impossible choices to ask people make. Um, so that's one of the things that's uh, one of the lessons I've learned. The other is that when needed, communities step up. Canadians step up when, um, when their food banks call for help. Um, we, we were never left alone. So while times got dicey and food banks got stressed, they never were abandoned by their communities. And that's from coast to coast to coast, which is a really inspiring story to, to sort of bring forward that we can do the work of building back better because we, we came together to support each other during the pandemic. The other thing is just how innovative food banks are. Um, and they can change things and respond to community needs. One of the interesting stats from the pandemic for us is that 70% of food banks 
um, added a home delivery model in the height of a pandemic, because um, that's what was needed in the community. If you think of people who didn't, weren't able, if they've got illnesses or disabilities or were elderly and weren't able or wanting to leave their home for their own safety and health, the food bank found a way to get to them. And so I think some of that will continue. Finding people and responding to the needs where they are, um, we're going to try to continue that. You're making me a little teary here. Actually, that is that is just wonderful. And I'm curious. We only we don't have a lot of time left, but I'm curious. Have do you think there's been a shift in mindset about food banks? Because a lot of people, I'm sure, found themselves uh, at the food bank who thought they would never be there. Yeah, and. I agree with you. I get a little teary at uh, thinking about it as well. We saw a lot of people turning to the food bank for, for, for the first time. You know, COVID came at us all and, and it just, you know, changed our life circumstances differently. Um, so I do think there's been a shift. And I, I think even just the feeling in March, if we all think back, of going to the grocery store and not having food that you want on the shelves is a new experience for a lot of people in Canada. And I think it reminds us all that, you know, we all could be uh, in need of a food bank at some point in our lives, and that there's no shame in that, that that's why food banks are there. And in fact, if you're at the point where you're having to make those tough choices, what I always want to say to folks is it takes a lot of courage to reach out, and I get emotional, but to reach out and to support yourself and to support your family, and food banks are there for you. That they've, We've been there since um, we're actually uh, marking 40 years of food banks in Canada this year. Um, and we'll continue to be there and be exactly what you need. So please, there's a lot of courage in coming forward and, and getting the support you need for your family. I am so, so, so happy that you came to join me one year later. Um, I'm actually filled with hope and, and tears. <laughs> uh, <Yes. laughs> so listen, if people want to uh, connect with Food Banks of Canada, you know, uh, help or volunteer or, or, or take advantage of the service, where can they go? So at foodbankscanada.ca, you can go and find their food banks in your community, um, in every community across this country. Um, there's a find a food bank feature. And you can also look at our new campaign, Food Banks Canada, There For You, which highlights the fact that food banks are there for you, um, supporting communities and pushing for the change so that we can have a Canada where no one goes hungry. Amazing. Kirsten, thank you. You are definitely in the right job. I can feel your empathy coming through <laughs> uh, right now. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I wish you the best of luck as 2021 continues. Thank you. To you as well. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. First thing that you'll notice is some separation from each other. Yes, it's a lie we've been believing since time and I can't speak for everyone, but certainly in my circles, I am noticing drastic shifts in people's diets as they look for more environmentally friendly and healthier sources of nutrition. Shelby Taylor is an entrepreneur on a mission to create good for the world through nutritious organic meal options. She is the founder and CEO of Chicopee, a fast-growing brand that offers a line of organic pasta made with only chickpeas and lentils. Two things I never in a million years thought I'd be enthusiastic about, but here we are. Welcome to the show, Shelby. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. 
so your stuff is everywhere. I have to admit, I've noticed it on shelves everywhere. What inspired you to start Chicopee? Oh, that's a, a big question. So um, it started back in, I guess, the end of 2014, 2015. And I owned a small health food shop at the time. And I had also just had my first child. I, I knew actually that I wanted to start a product line. I was super into nutrition. Um, I just wasn't sure what that looked like. And the shop sort of gave me a place to do market research and really listen to customers, what they were looking for, what was missing. And the struggle that I realized everyone was really having was trying to feed themselves and their families nutritious meals that everyone would actually eat. So when I really dug into it and asked them, you know, well, what is something that you eat, you know, whether it's healthy or not, and pasta came up over and over again. So that's what really got the wheels turning on. Why can't this be something, not just pasta, but all the foods that we actually already love and enjoy, why can't they contribute to our health? And I think that's a hurdle for a lot of people is they say, oh, if, I, if I'm going to eat healthy, I have to give up my favorite things. Exactly. And, and for a lot of people, those, those carbs, you know, that, uh, that carb overload we often talk about is one of the things they don't want to give up. Uh, in your bio, it's, it, you, it's mentioned that, you know, your, your company is a B corporation. Um, and, you know, that sounds great on paper, but what does it actually mean? Um, it holds you to the absolute highest standards of environmental and social responsibility possible. So, you know, it's a it's a third party verification program that digs through every piece of your business and, you know, what it's doing for the environment, how you treat your people, um, every aspect of, of doing good, do you do charity work, um, you know, every single thing that way. And so it's a very, very tough certification to get. Um, and it really ensures and lets the customer know that they're purchasing products that, that are, you know, using business as a force for good. And you also, you know, I, I love this because I find a lot of women entrepreneurs do this, though. They always have, you know, um, they're always there to help others. And so you really believe in giving back in the community as well. And how do you do that? Um, we do that in a, in a bunch of ways. And I think you're right. It's, you know, it's one of the greatest things about women entrepreneurs. We are more likely overall to care about social change. And one of our biggest um pieces, I guess, of, of what we do is we donate 2% of all our revenue to charity. Um, and we do it in a really specific way. So we've actually just partnered with a new uh, partner with um, Community Food Centers Canada. And what we do is supply 2% of our revenue to them or like a minimum amount per month. And they use it to purchase regenerative organic produce um, from a farm that, that's up near where offices in Cremor. Um, that's literally leading the way for regenerative agriculture. So this supplies, so this not only helps get, you know, super healthy, nutritious food into the bellies of people who need it, who are using the centers, the community food centers, which are much more than food banks, um, but it's also supporting the movement for regenerative agriculture, which could single-handedly really reverse climate change. So we get to make an impact on the environment um, and on people at the same time. And, and honestly, this ties in. We, we, we were speaking with a representative from Food Banks of Canada earlier in this show. So uh, it's an excellent compliment uh, to them that we're talking with you as well, who does so much to help so many. Uh, so I want to circle back, though, a little bit on, on, on the thought of, you know, the carbs, uh, sure. because chickpea is also a protein source. Yes. 
Yes, and the, the, the carb question is, is one that we get all the time. So um, chickpea has 23 grams of protein per serving, which is equal to like a three ounce serving of chicken or fish. So it's very high in protein. It's also very high in fiber. So the net carbs of our pasta are, it's about 30% less net carbs in our pasta than regular pasta. Um, but that's, we really, which is great. It's fantastic if you're trying to reduce carbs, but it's also a much higher quality carb because it's completely, chickpeas and lentils are both complex carbs, um, which don't spike your blood sugar. They satiate you much longer. And, you know, carbs are an important part of a healthy diet, but there's, there's certainly, they're not all created equal. Yeah, and we can certainly overdo it on the carbs. There's no question. Uh, mm -hmm. So if people want to know more about chickpea, uh, you, you have new products coming out? Yes, we just released um, a full-size oven-ready lasagna, which we're super excited about. People have been asking us for that since day one. Uh, elbows and a full line of plus greens, which is our pasta, chickpeas and lentils, plus spinach and kale. So it's like very clean and it adds two servings of veggies. Incredible. So, uh, all right. So if people want to find out more, I'm sure you have uh, recipes on your website and, and all great information. So where can they go to find out more about Chicopee? And more importantly, where can they buy it? Yes, absolutely. So go to chickpea.com and we have tons of tons of uh, great recipes. Um, and we also have a where to buy page, which will list all the retailers you can buy it from, or you can buy it directly from us online too. All right. Incredible. Thank you, Shelby. This was great. I'm looking forward to trying some Chicopee. Great. Thank you. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast. But we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.